Hello everybody and welcome back to Life Negotiations. My name is Lucine Merabi, I'm a professional negotiator and as you know by now I always bring you fascinating professional negotiators. I just had a conversation with the one and only, the legendary, the author of the famous book Never Split the Difference, Chris Voss. Chris is a former head of hostage negotiations for the FBI. He was the only lead international kidnapping negotiator for the FBI. He is today the CEO of the Black Swan Group where he shares his negotiation techniques with the world. We had a fascinating conversation about everything negotiation, about how aligned we are, about the importance of emotional intelligence in negotiation. He shared fascinating stories that he had, tips, tricks. It was a wonderful conversation that I'm happy to share with you now. Enjoy. Hello, Chris. Hello. Welcome to Dubai. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time for this interview and welcome to Life Negotiations. Thank you, my pleasure. What I love about what you say is everything in life is a negotiation. Right. And as a negotiator, I'm trying to convey that message and teach people how important it is to use negotiation skills in everyday life. But how far do you think it goes, this aspect of everything as a negotiation? Can you elaborate? Yeah, well, anytime the words I want or I need are either in your head or coming across your lips or the person that you're talking to says that you're in a negotiation. Most people only think negotiations are when money's involved. Mm. The commodity is money. That's a negotiation. But in point of fact, the commodity first is time. Collaboration. I want a cup of coffee. I need you to speed up the project. It was um, a couple of years ago when I was in Los Angeles. I was talking to this young lady and she said, you know, I work for Sony and we sell the rights to, my job is, you know, we sell the rights to songs, to movies. Mm -hmm. She says, there's no negotiation there. There's, you know, there's a price on songs. They tell us and either they get it or they don't. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh my God. Like, all right, so somebody calls up to try to get a song. And they got a bad tone of voice. Does the person that take that call lose their request? Or because they didn't like the way they asked, do they put the request on the bottom of the pile? Mm. Or maybe because they like the way they asked. They put it on top. Or maybe do they walk it down the hall? Because mm. the mail's not going to be picked up for a day. Can I walk it down there right now? You know, so it's performance. And if you look at it like that, then... Very few things that aren't negotiations. Hmm. So how come you think people then still don't know the importance of negotiation? They still believe, you know, it's about salary or it's about this and that. Like everybody that's teaching negotiations has been trying to get people to rethink negotiations yeah. for a very long time. You know, the books probably first really started coming out getting to yes, which probably came out in, I don't know, maybe in the 1970s, 1980s, been there a long time. I think one of the problems with getting TS is it's, it's intellectually flawless, but it's like trying to learn a language by reading a dictionary. Mm. There's nothing wrong in the dictionary, but it's mm. just hard to apply because it's academically perfect or it's intellectually flawless, but people are not academically perfect or flawless. 
So there's the academic books out there. Well, then there's, you know, Donald Trump's The Art of the Deal, which tells you a lot more about him than a lot of people really realize. Mm. Like I read that, I was in New York, so I was, you know, back then he was, he was a business icon. I was very interested in him. And I learned a lot about him. We actually ended up with mutual friends, went to the same church. And I thought the book was enlightening about him. Like he, he talks about when he owned the Plaza Hotel. He likes people who could handle him. Mm. So he owned the Plaza Hotel, he took over, and he, he talks about the story, and he's starting to micromanage the guy running the Plaza Hotel. And he realizes he shouldn't do it, but he doesn't care because he wants to micromanage him. So the guy comes back and then wants him to make every decision. Mm. Instead of fighting him on the decisions he's trying to make, the guy goes, okay, what kind of towels you want? You know, what kind of tissues do you want? Yeah. You know, what kind of flowers you want? He comes back to him for every decision. And then Trump finally says, you know what? Stop bothering me. Just run the place yourself. And he tells a story out of respect for the guy that understood how to deal with him. Mm. So anyway, but that was one of the first books on how to negotiate for the real world. Yeah. You know, normal people. On the field. Not academics. And so then that's why I think, you know, my book is really about how to negotiate for regular people. Yeah. Using emotional intelligence, simple phraseology that anybody could use. And mm. I think that's helped. So if you look at the very first books that came out and then you have the FBI method where, you know, people like you and Gary Nesner really helped spread the world of, okay, this is how the FBI negotiates. Right. And then we go to the Harvard method, again, written by academics. What do you see as the main differences between all these models? You know, my, I, my Harvard colleagues, I have a tremendous amount of respect for, and, they, and they're really, really smart people. Mm -hmm. But a lot of philosophers, academics, they come up with a theory, and then they look for instances in the world that fit their theory. And the through line really isn't there. Or we refined the black swan method because the students we taught, we made them use it in real life. Yeah. Like we didn't have them do simulations and tell us how it worked in the simulation. We said, take this to work. Yeah. One of my students in Georgetown once had, had the manual from the class next to him well, he literally negotiated a billion-dollar deal on Wall Street. And he kept referring to his notes from the class, and he negotiated the billion-dollar deal. And then, he, and then we had him write about it, and so we refined it in the real world. My Harvard colleagues, they have all their students do simulated negotiations. Mm. So the people are negotiating when they don't actually have skin in the game. And the other thing is they'll sit down for one conversation and try to seal the deal in 45 minutes. Uh. That's the one thing that I learned when I went through their course, they had us doing simulations every day and every student loves simulations and you feel like you got a lot out of it and you do. But in looking back on it, I realized we'd only meet one time and we'd only give it 45 minutes. And if we, wherever we were at 45 minutes, we're like, all right, uh, uh, what do you got? What, okay, let's, yeah. you know, let's close it. Let's be done. Because if we didn't, we felt like we failed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That ain't real life. Mm -mm. Real life, three interactions, 10 interactions. Yeah, you don't even know how long you have. 30 minutes, 90 minutes, six hours. Six months. Six months. Mm. 
So that's a totally different laboratory. That the real world laboratory is different than the artificial laboratory. Mm. And so everything that's in that in the book, I take a hostage negotiation skill, and then I had students prove it in the real world, and then they come back and tell me about it. Mm. And so we proved it in the real world. So as long as it's real world, then whether it is the FBI method that you use, the Black Swan method, or any method. And it's in crisis negotiations or in business negotiations. As long as it's the real world, do you right. then see more similarities yeah. between those worlds? No, no, exactly. Okay. Because then, um, and you know, you mentioned Gary Nessner, who's a, who's my boss and a mentor. Yeah, I was thinking on the way friend. over here. He's I've, I've had a number of mentors. I probably learned as much from Gary as I did from anybody. Mm. Learned a lot from Gary. I used to call him uh, after he retired because I'd find phrases that he taught me coming out of my mouth. Really? And I'd call him on the phone and be like, ah, oh, man, you infected me, man. I'm, I'm saying the same things now that you said to me four years ago. But the decision-making in a crisis and decision-making in a business deal, if it's a human, is, is the same. Yeah. What am I afraid of losing? How does it affect how I see myself, my identity? Mm. What, is, what does this mean for who I am? And really, what more, what am I afraid of losing is, is the biggest driver yeah. of all human decision-making. It's not the only driver, but the biggest driver of all human decision-making is what am I worried about losing? And as soon as you wrap your mind around that, you can get a read on anybody in any situation. Okay. As you know, in life negotiations, I pull the negotiator to a personal story because what I'm really interested in is how can we use negotiation skills for everyday situations for everyday life, right. especially when we're facing adversity. So would you be willing, Chris, to share a story where you had a personal loss, a personal failure, a personal difficulty that knowing how to be a negotiator helped you solve it? Well, as much as knowing how to be a negotiator and also the negotiation somebody used on me. When I was working a case in the Philippines, the Burnham Sabero case, which was a train wreck from end to end. Guillermo Sabero was murdered by the Abu Sayyaf about three weeks in. The Abu Sayyaf killed a lot of Filipinos along the way in brutal in a brutal fashion. And it ended about 13 months later in a botched rescue attempt. There were three hostages left after 13 months. Um, two uh, Americans, Martin and Gracia Burnham, and a Filipino female named Deborah Yap. Botched rescue attempt. The scout rangers didn't even know there were hostages in the camp. They just assaulted, opened fire. Martin Burnham was killed, Deborah Yap was killed, and Gracia Burnham was, was wounded to, in the leg and, and lived and is still uh, here to this day. Um, I maintain an acquaintanceship with her and her children. And when that went down, I happened to be in the U.S. and like it had been, it had gotten ugly and we were just wondering how it was going to end because the bad guys were in a state of disarray. None of the agencies were cooperating. I mean, it, it was a mess before that happened. And then I got the call about five o'clock in the morning. I'll never forget that. The negotiator in country said, I've got bad news. Martin is dead. And he teed me up with that perfectly. You know, he told me bad news was coming. He waited about a half, a second, a second and a half. He just let me brace myself. People are resilient mm -hmm. if you let them brace themselves. Emotional pain, physical pain. Um, a podcaster I listen to all the time now, Andrew Huberman, was talking about this on his podcast. 
said, if a doctor says this is going to hurt, and then he jabs you, you handled it. If he jabs you without telling you it's horrible, or if he says this is going to hurt, and then he waits 10 minutes, the wait is excruciating. Mm. Emotional pain, physical pain, same thing. Let a person brace themselves, but don't linger. And they can handle it. And that's what Kevin did when he called me. Got bad news. Martin is dead. It was a personal low point for me at the time. And I had, but I had to brief everybody in the US government on mm-hmm. our side of the world. I started making phone calls. And first I called uh, my bosses at the time, and, and Gary was still there. I got bad news Martin is dead. We called FBI headquarters. I assumed that I knew before State Department did, so I called Department of State. I had to make notifications across the government. I said it exactly that way every time. That was the only way I could get through it. And to this day, if we got bad news for somebody, let them brace themselves. Don't hit people without warning. Mm. Human beings are phenomenally resilient if you let them brace themselves. And I experienced that in that moment. And then a couple of years later, then I realized, like I said, it was a personal low point. I finally came to the point where I realized it wasn't my father that died. And it wasn't my brother or it wasn't my significant other. So I was being a little bit self-pitying to think that it was a personal low for me when I thought about the impact that it actually had on his family. And that was one of the things that brought, brought me out of it. You know, I got... I got no business feeling bad about this. They're the ones that are entitled to be devastated, mm. not me. And I love the way in everything you do, there's always the human element, there's always neuroscience, and there's always emotional intelligence, yeah. right? Well. Emotional intelligence is in everything that you do. And I love that because we still, till this day, despite the science of it, we have people saying emotions have nothing to do on a negotiation table. <laughs> emotions just put them... I've been, I, I kid you not, Chris, I was invited to speak at a negotiation conference. And when they saw my presentation all over emotional intelligence, they were like, no, you're not going to speak. People don't want to know about emotional intelligence when we speak about negotiation. This is a real story. So can you please, coming from you, explain how important emotions are in negotiations? Yeah, well, uh, Sean Acker, a Harvard psychologist, did a great TED talk. I think it's called The Happiness Advantage. I, I mentioned it so much, I should know the title. But he's a, my source of data on this. And by the way, if anybody hasn't watched a TED talk, should watch it because it is hysterical, of course. Okay, I'll put a link around this podcast. And, uh, and he, Sean says, you're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. Emotions. Amazing. Positive emotions make you smarter, which the flip side of that coin is if you're in a negative frame of mind, you're dumber. So you have the recognition of the neuroscience. If you think emotions don't have anything to do with negotiations, you are ignoring neuroscience, which is hard science. So one thing I love about neuroscience, it's not speculation. Yeah. It's good, solid, peer-reviewed, academically rigorous, serious science. Mm. And then you also combine in, just before neuroscience started hitting really hard, people were talking about flow, the mindset of flow. A friend of mine, Stephen Kotler, wrote a great book on it called The Rise of Superman. 
where people are capable of extraordinary things in flow. It's extraordinary physical feats, for example. Yeah. Um, there used to be uh, Caesar's Palace uh, Casino in Las Vegas. They used to have this fountain in front of it, this monstrous fountain. Back in the 1970s, a motorcyclist tried to jump over it, Evil Knievel, and he didn't make it. He crashed. Didn't kill him, but like broke, broke every bone in his body. He mm. recovered. But flow X Games athletes, an X Game athlete on a motorcycle does a backflip over the same fountain just because of what's in his head. You know, human performance has not increased where somebody, their physical powers are not 10X, but their performance is. Mm. How does somebody do a backflip over a fountain that another guy couldn't even get over at all? This thing called flow, which you can take in more data, you have more uh, emotional resilience, you have more mental energy. Everything about your life increases in its, your ability to perform. It's highly positive. It's borderline euphoria. Those are emotions, highly positive emotions. You're smarter in a positive frame of mind. You're dumber in a negative frame of mind. There's no emotional neutral. There's mm -hmm. none. And the neurosciences continue to back it up. So to say emotions have nothing to do with the negotiations means that you think you still believe in gravitational pull or that the, <laughs> or that, uh, the sun goes around the earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things you often talk about is tactical empathy, right. Right? the superpower of tactical empathy. Right. Um, for those who don't know, what is it exactly and how can you apply it in everyday life? Well, it's a neuroscience application of empathy is what it really boils down to. We know that the brain is pr principally negative. Yeah. Our default mode, the amygdala, the wiring in, the, in our brain, which is known as the limbic system, is designed to enhance mostly negative thoughts. Yeah. Neuroscience. Not speculation. Our default mindset is negative, number one. Number two, simply calling out negative emotions is the most effective way to diminish them. This is a neuroscience experiment that has been duplicated a number of times. Yeah. They put people in negative frame of mind. They have them in an fMRI. They watch the negativity in their brain light up because they know where the amygdala is and what parts enhance negative thinking. Then they simply ask the person, they put them in a negative frame of mind by showing them a picture that makes them sad, angry, stressed, anxious, whatever. A puppy dog in the rain. I don't know what was in the pictures. Mm -hmm. A little old lady, a homeless person, whatever. Yeah. And they simply said, what are you feeling? And every single time when the person simply labeled the emotion, called it out, the electrical activity in the negative part of the brain diminished every time. Yeah. Now it diminished by different degrees, and the, the degree of impact of labeling a negative changes, but it doesn't change the type of impact. It's a neuroscience proven experiment. Mm. So what's tactical about empathy? If I know that you're principally driven by negative emotions, and I know that the best way to get rid of them is to call them out, yeah. then all I gotta do is call them out. If I know that you don't trust me, I will say, Seems like I haven't earned your trust. Yeah. And that will begin to change the dynamic instantly. Mm. So tactical empathy is, empathy is emotional intelligence. And the neuroscience lessons, we apply tactically 
to put you in a frame of mind where you can listen to me without being clouded by your negative emotions. Well, it sounds easier than in reality, right? Because in order to do that, first you have to be connected to your own emotions, knowing how to label your own emotions. What is it that I'm feeling? What is it that's happening in my body? In order for you to be able to connect to the emotions of somebody else. So having not only the listening skills through the ears, but like the 3D observation of right. what's happening for somebody. Right. right. And then having the emotional capabilities of expressing what it is that you seem to feel towards another without judging or pointing fingers. So there's a whole aspect that comes together in this arena of emotional intelligence yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. and the mirroring and having it right, or sometimes deliberately having it wrong, right? Exactly. So that they can correct you yeah. and say, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So there's so much that comes together, but as long as, as we, you know, people like you and I keep emphasizing the importance of emotional intelligence in negotiation, I think we're really making a change in the way negotiations used to be perceived as this, you know, hardcore, I win, you lose strategy. Right. Yeah. So there's yeah. still a lot to be done. Or the argument or... Yeah, exactly. The selling. Right. Yeah. The emotional intelligence is the hack. It's the mechanism that bypasses all that nonsense. And also on a human level, right? We, mm -hmm. we get to connect on a human level and we get to get rid of the, the personas and the titles and the look at me and the ego. And we connect from heart to heart. And that's where we get the magic done, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, agree completely. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and... If we pull this further and say, what about using these beautiful skills to negotiate with ourselves? Yes. I mean, at the moment, as you know, it, it's a mess in the world. There's so much suffering happening because of COVID, the COVID measures and, and the lockdowns and everything that's happening. Mental health is going over the roof, depression. How do you think people can use negotiation skills to change the inner dialogue, the conversations that we have with that little voice in our head? Well, it's easy, but it's it's different than all the feedback that we're getting. So it seems it seems like it's got to be wrong because the media gets it wrong all the time. Mm. You know, the media just gets empathy wrong, whether it's television, movies, any of that stuff. So there's very little feedback that reinforces how to do it properly. Like it, you may have a character in a movie who's scared of something. And they'll give the character dialogue and, and he'll say to himself, I'm not scared. Don't be scared. Yeah. I, deny the negative. And yeah, suddenly he'll rise up and, you know, be Superman and it'll work. Well, I do the opposite. Like, uh, I recognize that anxiety concern is fear in all these different disguises. Yeah. Like, it's all fear with a different word. Mm. And how do I know that? Practice. Isn't anything other than practice. But so if I feel concern, I'll say I'm scared. Yeah. I'll say it out loud. You call it that. And, and I'll feel it go away a little bit. Mm. And so... I literally, I'll go, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared. I'm not scared, you know, because I diminished it every time. Yeah. I'm coaching some real estate agents um, a couple of months ago. One of the uh, agents on a Zoom call, she comes on, she says, yeah, I don't know, you know, I'm really worried about doing this. It just seems contrary to all my training. So I said, repeat after me. She, she said, okay. I say, say, say I'm scared. She says, I'm, I'm scared. I say, say it again, say it again, say it again. I said, now how do you feel? She goes, I, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> and then what I do is I pull it further and say, okay, then what is the need? What oh, do you need? 
right? Now that you know what you feel, what is the need behind it that creates this fear? Because if you're scared, if you're scared, there is a need for certainty, for this, for that, whatever it is. And if you connect with the need then, then you can get back into empowerment of saying, okay, what can I do about it? How can I satisfy that need? Exactly. And the other day I got one of the most beautiful compliments I've ever had in my life. There was this lady in one of my trainings. She said, Luz, I have a son with special needs who doesn't communicate always, you know, perfectly well what his needs are. So as a mom, I need to really be focused on understanding what is it that he really needs, whether it's physical, emotional, mental. And this lady told me, Luz, maybe because you have a son with special needs, you're automatically connected with the needs of other people. Mm. You know, you, you go beyond the words and the acts and the mm. ego and you look, okay, what is the need? Right. What is it that this person needs? Right. And if you do that on a negotiation table and you're so focused on, let me try to understand what this person needs, then that also helps to calm everything down and to look for the collaboration and the solution, which in the end, you know, that's what we're all looking for, right? Yeah, I would agree completely. And the interesting point about what you just said is it's just practice. Yeah, exactly. You know, you got forced into a situation through no fault of your own, but you found yourself there and you said, all right, I got to tackle this. Yeah. And the more you do it, the faster you are at it. And pretty soon, bang, you can pick it up. Yeah, and then it becomes automatic. And then you do it with everybody. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. good for you. Yeah, because it's there. It works. You know, you, you built a circuit in your head. I know your son, Brandon, is working with you right. in the Black Swan group. Right. How do we teach our children? By the way, I, you know, a funny story related to Gary, if I, if I can. Yeah, of course. Because my whole time with the FBI, like, God bless Gary. I mean, he knew I was going to do the job. But I realized in hindsight, now I was a loose cannon. I was a loose cannon and hit the target. Like, I would call Gary at 5 o'clock in the morning and say, I'm getting ready to get on a plane to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd be like, Okay. <laughs> You know, and I know that he, like he was at any given point in time, people, uh, you know, might call him and go like, what's Voss doing? And and his answer would be, he's doing his job. He'll be fine. Leave him alone. Mm. But what I'm saying is I never really let anybody know what I was doing until I was already doing it. I wasn't good at letting people know in advance. Mm. So how do I expect my son to be any different than me? My, <laughs> like my son is ridiculously independent and he does the job the whole time. And about a year ago, something else is going on in the company. I don't know anything about it until it's getting implemented. And I'm like, how can I expect anything different? Because I knew what I was doing. I want to be left alone. So I sent Gary a text and it said, my son is exactly like me. I owe you an apology. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's beautiful. Yeah, we talked about when Gary was on the show, he talked a lot about leadership and how you back your team and make them feel trusted and backed by their leader, even though they make a mistake. Right. And I thought that was really powerful. And also in the way he managed the Waco incident by calling everybody on the team and saying, this was not your failure. You know, this was a teamwork. We did everything together. I'm proud of you, despite the outcome. Yeah. So it was really powerful the way he, he combined negotiation and leadership in that arena. Yeah, he always backed us up. So you confirm, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I could listen to you for hours and I, I, have, I, mean, I have so many, so many questions, but I'm aware of your um, time and I will respect that. Just as a question, having all these decades of experience now, both on the field and in the academics and combining everything, looking back, have you seen the negotiation evolve? Is it 
changing? Is it moving towards a certain direction? And then can you pull it further to future negotiations and what you expect? Well, we're evolving what we're doing. Um, I think one of the differences uh, with the Black Swan team is very much like when I was working for Gary. You know, the, the cadre that Gary pulled together, at the crisis negotiation unit at the time, like we breathed it. Like there was, uh, there was one person who got transferred in after Gary left. And this person said to another person on the team, she, they said, you guys, you guys breathe this. Mm. And my colleague went, oh, yeah. And so we were always pushing the art forward there. And a variety of things happened. And, and principally, the biggest thing was really, not only do we have Gary, but we, the chain between us all the way up to the director was completely supportive. I mean, we couldn't have asked for more support all the way up to the director of the FBI, Louis Free. I mean, they, were, they knew we were about the right thing and they wanted to fund people who were getting the job done. And at, you know, as that chain fell apart, the bureaucracy went in another direction, the environment went away. But in the Black Swan group now, we breathe this stuff. Mm. Like me and my son Brandon and Derek are principal thinkers, although we've got several other people, Sandy and Troy and Barbara, that are bringing in uh, the stuff and, and we, we love it. I mean, we breathe this. And so within the parameters of what we believe tactical empathy is, we're constantly inventing new stuff and we're sharing it with the world. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we've learned since the book came out that we're teaching people in our classes now and, and we breathe this and we love it. So can you name a few that are not in the book, but you've well, developed it? Was, it, was, it was one thing that my son came up with which is a combination of what would effectively be an open-ended question, which we refer to as calibrated questions, with a label, with calling out emotion. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm getting ready to ask you something, and I know that your concern is going to be that you're going to get in trouble, you know, my son on his own, and he taught the rest of us, will say, how many people are going to get mad at you if you do this? So before your answer... You know, we call it a thought-shaping question. Yeah. We know that the obstacle is the reaction. So we get you to deal with the reaction before you answer. Mm. With that, that question form like that, you'll think about who's going to get mad at you. And you'll decide whether or not you can live with that. And since you've thought about it, you probably can. And you will have dismissed it. And then you'll agree to move forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to you agreeing to move forward and then finding out later that people were mad at you. Mm. You know, what we've done is we've deactivated a negative emotion in, the, in, in advance. It's predictable that you're going to be worried about who's going to get mad at you. And we do this time after time after time. You know, watch a person think. They'll go like, no, let's go ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's so, so powerful. That it, indeed is really powerful. It made me think of a question that, the other day, I had to make a very difficult decision. It was about the medical treatment for my son. Am I going to give it, not give it? The side effects were massive. Wow. Not giving it was going to have effects on his quantity of life, you know, how long he was going to live. A horrible situation. Like, what am I going to choose? You know, am I going to make things worse but prolong his life? Or am I going to choose for him to stay happy as he is and then maybe live less? A horrible choice. No kidding. 
So I called one of my partner negotiators. I said, listen, I'm going to explain you the situation. Obviously, I'm emotionally involved. So I need you to tell me what am I missing? And, you know, what don't I see that you see being outside of it? Hmm. Okay. And what I loved, he listened, he heard me out and he said, Luz, whatever you decide, you're going to regret it. With which regret can you live better? Interesting. Exactly. And that was exactly what I needed to get to the decision. Which regret would you rather live with? Powerful. That's a great question. Because there is no right decision in right. this situation. Whatever you do, the future will tell whether you were right or wrong, and probably you were wrong. Exactly. <laughs> so with which regrets can you live better? Take away the need to be perfect. Yeah. Which is a fool's errand anyway. Exactly. Wow. That's a smart guy. A good he friend. He's been... Trained by Gary also. <laughs> so, yeah, I think in this whole interview, we have Gary all over the place and, and the impact that he has had on, on you, on me, on the next generation of negotiators. So. Yeah, it's been, it's huge. Yeah. I like to get him out of retirement. So I like, I'm, I was driving here and I thought, I want to mention Gary somewhere out of my gratitude for him, but then you're yep. doing it as well. So this is wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very Thank grateful that, that I worked for him. Thank you so much, Chris. Is there anything you would like to gift the listeners, I mean, these are people who are interested in negotiations. I only speak to professional negotiators. Um, is there anything that with your expertise you would like to leave them with? Well, uh, f first of all, keep learning. Be delighted by it. But, you know, if you're interested in any of our ideas, any of the Black Swan ideas, and you don't have to be. I mean, there's lots of places to get ideas. And you should look at Andrew Huberman. You should look at Stephen Kotler. You should, you should look at Daniel Coyle wrote the Talent Code and, and the Culture Code. But, you know, check out our website. I mean, we got, we've got a lot of free material. Yeah, I've seen that. A lot of free material that we want people to use to move their lives forward. So feel free to take everything free that we've got. Thank you so much. Obviously, I will put the link to the website there. Um, and I'm really grateful for everything that you're sharing. You're really helping shape the negotiation arena, the professional negotiation world for negotiators. Like me, it's a goldmine of information. And I want to thank you very much. And thank you for your time and for this interview. It was a pleasure talking to you. Pleasure was mine. Thank you so much.